It's been more than a month since the 2020 election, and it's hard not to feel like the country is still on edge. That's partially because the past year has been traumatic, both for the people who always knew that the United States was capable of this kind of dysfunction and for the people who never thought this would be possible. And it's also partially because of weeks of attempts to question and overturn election results. But it's also because the eyes of the country are still on the South. Specifically, millions of Americans are waiting to see what happens in the two runoff Senate races in Georgia. Most of those millions of Americans were also watching Georgia in early November, when decades of voter registration and education work led mostly by black women won the state for president-elect Biden after days and days of counting and recounting. Georgia looks like one of those states that's not going to have uh, full results until tomorrow, and here's why. This is Fulton County. But when analysts went back and ran the numbers, the exit polls from Georgia showed something interesting. Even though the efforts of black-led voter education groups like the New Georgia Project were clearly key to Biden's victory there, the share of black voters in Georgia's electorate actually declined a little bit from 2016. Georgia didn't flip blue because of a single block of voters. It flipped blue because of a coalition. That coalition was heavily black, but it also included a growing number of Asian American voters and white college students and Latino voters and white suburban voters. In the presidential race, Democrats even saw small gains among white voters without college degrees. But moving forward, that coalition of voters is shaky. Well, one of the things that's interesting about this election is that the coalition, if we look at how people voted for their legislative and the congressional seats, many of those didn't flip. So you still have where people voted for Biden, but you still have a legislative body that's still controlled by a Republican. You still have a majority Republican congressional delegation. Um, there was only one uh, congressional seat that actually flipped, and that was in the Atlanta metro area. Um, and so you still have this divided gov- government where people are saying, I want someone different on the national level, but I'm fine with my local politics as it is. Um, and so that says that the coalition is um, tenuous. Um, and one of the things that we see with um, multiracial diverse coalitions is that they can be tenuous because um, oftentimes there are conflicts when it comes to not only what are the issues that should be addressed, but how should they be addressed. That's Pearl Dow. She's a professor of political science and African-American studies at Emory University in Atlanta and a born and raised Georgian and a former professor at the University of Arkansas. And we'll hear from her again later on. So why bring this up in a podcast about white anti-racism in the South? Well, the last episode was about working class coalitions. One of the reasons why those coalitions can be powerful is because they vote together either on single issues or across the ballot. And like working-class coalitions, multiracial voting coalitions have a history in the South. From KUAF Public Radio, and with funding from the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation, I'm Paul Kiefer. And this is The Movement That Never Was, a people's guide to anti-racism in the South and Arkansas. The multiracial coalition that won Georgia for Biden wasn't necessarily anti-racist across the board. 
even if some or most of its members would probably call themselves anti-racist. But because multiracial voting coalitions are making a comeback in the South, it's worth looking back at the past 70 years to see how those coalitions have changed and what they've accomplished. And in Arkansas, that means looking back to the end of the Second World War, and it means looking at labor unions. Um, the Second World War saw a, a growth, a tremendous growth in organized labor in the state, um, especially in urban areas, um, Little Rock, um, the industrial cities of South Arkansas, El Dorado, Benton, Camden, Texarkana. That's Michael Pierce. He's a history professor at the University of Arkansas, and he specializes in Arkansas labor history. And Professor Pierce says that the labor unions that started to gain traction in Arkansas were not perfect models of anti-racism. Oftentimes, race relations in these two, um, within unions, were fraught. Um, White workers were jealous um, and and tried to maintain um, the best jobs for white workers. But for the most part, um, the white workers realized that um, they would be better off with African-Americans in unions. For instance, the carpenters in Little Rock, one of the things that they came to conclude is they would rather have black workers in a carpenter's local um, working at union wages and accepting union work rules. That way, there's not a competition. That way, African-American workers outside of the union cannot be used to pull wages down white people have countervailing interests that become more powerful than their racism. And, and so it's, you know, so, so yeah, some white trade unionists are anti-racist. Most white trade unionists are racist, but they fear the power of industrialists. They fear the power of planters. They fear the power of the economic elite much more than they fear African-Americans. And as all of this is happening, industrialists and plantation owners in Arkansas are sounding the alarm about the rise of unions, and especially the rise of a coalition of black and white union labor that would upset the racial order. So those industrialists and plantation owners recruit the help of a guy from Texas named Vance Muse, the head of a conservative group called the Christian American Association. And in 1944, Vance Muse and the Christian American Association ran a campaign to pass a union-busting law known as Right to Work in Arkansas. Because the state's poll tax kept most black and working-class white Arkansans from voting, the law passed. And it was designed to keep power within the state in the hands of the elite to prevent trade unions and African Americans from acquiring more power. And if you read the literature at the time, and I, I, the, the language is such that I, I cannot you know, uh, talk about it on the radio, but Vance Muse and um, his allies you know, said this is an anti-N-word bill. Um, right to work is designed to maintain Jim Crow. And they were explicit. Um, and um, at one time, uh, the one uh, thing I, I think I, I can quote is um, a Christian American um, 
Association ad said, um, the right to work is necessary to preserve white supremacy. And that 1944 election really awakened a political movement among white and black union members in Arkansas. Not only had an anti-union right-to-work law been incorporated into the state constitution, but the state's century-old poll tax had stopped most of them from having any say in the matter. So getting rid of the poll tax became a central goal of the union coalition, which created a sharp divide in Arkansas politics. And so... In this period of the 40s, you, you can see the battle lines being drawn in Arkansas politics. You see labor, African-Americans, and liberals on one side, planters, industrialists, white supremacists, segregationists on the other. And because it was in the interest of white union members to get more black voters to the polls, Labor leadership in Arkansas convinced the national unions to send tens of thousands of dollars to the state to pay the price of the poll taxes so that black voters could turn out in support of pro-labor candidates. And this is the really um, part of this emergence of African-American political power in the state. Arkansas was never Alabama or Georgia or Mississippi where um, African-Americans couldn't vote until the Voting Rights Act of 1965. By the mid-1950s, this coalition had really started to find its footing in Arkansas. So when the U.S. Supreme Court's Brown v. Board of Education decision came along in 1954 and ignited an uproar among white people in Arkansas, it wasn't clear whether the coalition would hold. Little Rock, Arkansas, and the first phase of the trouble. The white population are determined to prevent... The Brown decision gave um, conservative forces in Arkansas and the rest of the country um, a tool, a tool that they could use to try to um, separate poor blacks and poor whites. And, um, the, you know, the Arkansas labor movement um, was quite explicit. They said, look, the people so upset against the Brown decision, the people who are making the most hay of this, the people who are circulating this hate, they have one purpose. And that's to get working-class black people and working-class white people hating on each other so that the elite can maintain control and maintain power. Not only did the coalition hold, when the civil rights movement picked up steam in Arkansas, white union members became some of its most ardent supporters. Professor Pierce pointed to a strike by the bus drivers' union in Little Rock in 1956 that forced the city to form a new union-owned bus company. And bear in mind that these bus drivers were white, and this was only a year before the integration crisis at Central High. And when these operations start, this new bus company, the new bus company never puts um, Jim Crow signs in their buses. Um, there's no signs telling African-Americans to get to the back of the bus. The company made it a point um, not to instruct the drivers to enforce segregation. And so on, on March 2nd, 1956, Little Rock um, launches an integrated bus system. Um, 
first major bus, first bus line in the Jim Crow South to operate without a color line. And for the next few decades, that coalition of black voters and white union voters picked up a lot of influence in Arkansas. The, the alliance between civil rights activists and trade unionists and liberals um, continues at, uh, throughout the 1960s. Um, in uh, 64, after the repeal of the pro of, of the poll tax, um, African Americans, uh, trade unionists, and these liberals uh, formed something called. Democrats for Arkansas. And Democrats for Arkansas is an attempt to um, align the Arkansas Democratic Party with um, LBJ's Great Society programs. Um, this, you know, the Civil Rights Act of '64, the Voting Rights Act of '65, Medicare, uh, Medicaid, uh, the, the creation of the SNAP program, um, the, the types of education and welfare programs of the National Democratic Party. But even though the Democrats for Arkansas, the DFA, actually gained some serious sway in state politics, they never quite got a perfect ally in the governor's mansion. The agenda that the DFA sets um, becomes the agenda for um, Governor Rockefeller and, and Governor Bumpers. And lots and lots of uh, the demands are enacted into law tax reform, um, regulation of businesses, um, uh, all of the reforms except those reforms that helped organize labor. And so they sort of forge um, Clinton and bumpers and prior in the 1970s, a, a new type of, of, of liberalism, and they remake uh, what it means to be a Democrat. Um, they become pro-business, and in doing so, they um, become, if not vocally anti-labor, anti-labor by lack of action. Um, the labor movement was at the heart of the liberal coalition that, that um, remade Arkansas politics, created the environment in which they were elected, Organized labor gave all of these guys tremendous amounts of money early in their career, but when it and so 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 without organized labor, bumpers and Pryor and Clinton would never have been elected. But once in office, bumpers and Pryor and Clinton refused to help organize labor. None of them supported the repeal of uh, the right to work law, which was on the ballot of 1976. So by the 1990s, without strong support for an organized labor movement coming from Democratic governors, the coalition of black voters and white union members in Arkansas didn't have much to stand on. But before we go any further, let's back up, because there's a lot more to this story. In Arkansas, most black voters and white union members joined the Democratic Party. That was the party of choice for organized labor. But the party was also home to some of the most vehement racists in Arkansas politics and in Southern politics writ large. But through all this, the Republican Party maintained a presence in Arkansas. So let's back up to 1966, when Arkansas elected Winthrop Rockefeller as governor, the first Republican to hold the office since Reconstruction. To go to Little Rock and talk to your governor or your commissioners, 
My opponent says he's going to be there all the time, available to you. And 1966 was an important time for the Republican Party. Just two years earlier, during Barry Goldwater's run for the White House against Lyndon Johnson, the Republican Party had launched what's known as the Southern Strategy, a push to draw white Southern voters away from the Democratic Party, largely by appealing to segregationists and anti-black racism. A South Carolina Republican strategist turned Reagan staffer named Lee Atwater described the strategy very bluntly in an infamous 1981 interview. Here's how I would approach that issue as a, as a, as a statistician or a political scientist. No, as a psychologist, which I'm not, is, is how abstract you, you handle the race thing. In other words, you start out, and, and now y'all aren't quoting me, you start out in 1954 by saying, <laughs> by 1968, you can't say, that hurts your so you say stuff like uh, forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And you get so abstract now, you're talking about cutting taxes and all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things, and the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. And subconsciously, maybe that is part of it. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that if it is getting that abstract and that coded, uh, that, that, we, that we're doing away with the racial problem one way or the other. Uh, you follow me? Because obviously sitting around saying uh, we want to cut taxes, we want to cut this, and we want is much more abstract than, than even the busing thing. Uh, and a hell of a lot more abstract than, you know. So I, any way you look at it, race is coming on the back burner. But the strategy didn't work immediately, and it really didn't work in Arkansas. And when the Rockefeller, you know, hailed from the wing of the Republican Party that very much objected to the Goldwater Operation Dixie, right? Um, and had been, you know, the Republican Party in general up until that point had been very, um, you know, progressive or at least, you know, not any less progressive than the Democratic Party on racial issues. So there had been kind of an balance or a neutrality of sorts. That's Angie Maxwell. She's the director of the Diane Blair Center for Southern Politics and Society and a political science professor at the University of Arkansas. And Professor Maxwell said that even as the Republican Party started embracing white segregationist voters in the rest of the South, in Arkansas, Winthrop Rockefeller really set the tone for Republican racial politics. And so you don't get that same fleeing to the anti-civil rights party that you get in a lot of other southern states. But without another party to attract all the white segregationists, the Democratic Party in Arkansas was left in a really fragile position. You know, there were some Democratic, you know, leaders in Arkansas that kind of leaned more progressive or were more openly progressive on race because they kind of knew that the segregationist wing didn't have anywhere to go, right? It's not like the Republican Party was going to attract them, right? And there are others that worried that the Republican Party might might shift in Arkansas and start to resemble what it was what it looks like in other parts of the South, right? So even as the Republican Party elsewhere in the South had started to pick up white voters, 
the broad working class coalition of black and white Democratic voters still held a lot of power across the region. Professor Dow, the political scientist from Emory who we heard from earlier, spoke about Jimmy Carter as a prime example. Carter was elected Georgia's governor in 1971, right on the heels of the Civil Rights era and the Voting Rights Act. And he made it to the governor's mansion because of the support of both new black voters and working-class white voters. But even if Carter's election was a repudiation of the Jim Crow era, the coalition that voted him into office weren't all that united by a shared interest in racial justice. It really had more to do with shared class identity. The Democratic Party was still seen as the party of working-class people. Because we also have to understand economics was changing as well. So not only was there a shift in the racial um, tone and, and tenor and tone, but also America is beginning to have to address the fact that heavy industry was slowly beginning to decline. Um, so what did that mean for um, persons that were working in factories and plants or in the South um, farmers um, and persons that were lower income? So you see all these issues are culminating. And so that allows for Carter to form this coalition of voters that were just coming into the electorate as well as voters um, who had been historically voting um, for years. But I think it's time to tap the tremendous strength and vitality and idealism and hope and patriotism and a sense of brotherhood and sisterhood in this country to unify our nation to make it great once again. And Carter was just one of the white liberals who won governor's races in the South in the early 70s. It was a trend across the region. And that trend really came to a head when Jimmy Carter won the presidency in 1976. According to ABC News projection, Jimmy Carter will, of course, take Georgia with its 12 electoral votes. Uh, Georgia has, in the past a few presidential elections, strayed to Goldwater, to Nixon, to Wallace, and now it's like the prodigal son... Despite the Republican Party's efforts to pick up voters in the South, Carter won every southern state except Virginia. And that sent the Republicans back to the drawing board. They came back with a charismatic movie star turned California governor named Ronald Reagan and a new strategy. Here's Professor Maxwell again. You know, it's Ronald Reagan's team that polls 40,000 American women and actually figures out that they can win a lot of Southern women, white women to their party by doubling down on traditional gender roles, Right. Now, when they do that, the Republican Party brand starts to pick up voters in Arkansas. And the Reagan team also worked to change the party's tone about the legacy of the civil rights movement. We see this, pretty much this beginning of this re-articulation of what were the goals of the civil rights movement. So you begin to see um, policies of, um, and conversations that talk about um bootstraps and this conservative notion about individualism and these ideas around education um, when we talk about school choice. All of these are terms that would be used to dismantle and um, redefine what were the real goals of the civil rights movement. And their strategy really worked. 
Reagan flipped every southern state except Georgia and West Virginia. When Reagan comes into office, we see this um, this continued, particularly with language around that tend to shape policy that says that Black people were the problem. These ideas began to reshape how um, policies around education, um, around crime um, are implemented, but they also begin to shape a language um, that ultimately says that the people who are in need of the most assistance, it is they are to blame for um, for their circumstance. And what that does for white voters, that many who still felt that they had been disadvantaged by the civil rights movement, it then gives them this sense that um, this language or these policies are impacting them in a positive way. Um, but when we look at many outcomes, like I said, if we look at many of the measures, particularly in a state like Georgia, we see that um, white white people, particularly poor people or, or middle-class workers, that they are and have struggled in the same ways that um, Blacks have as well. For different reasons, sometimes in different reasons, but that the policies have not necessarily benefited them financially or economically or educationally. And during his presidency, this new kind of rhetoric about race really captured the attention of working-class white Southerners who had previously voted for the same candidates as their Black neighbors. But the Democratic Party had one last trick up its sleeve to win the South. Running a Southerner. And that brings us back to Arkansas, where local Democrats were still holding on to power. And Professor Maxwell explained that the Arkansas Democrats were unusually well-positioned to rise to national prominence, possibly because the state's Democratic coalition was so tenuous. The Democratic leadership who was able to hold together that coalition, those candidates and office holders, actually tended to do very well nationally if they aspired to national office, because you've got to govern the whole country. And in her view, that's what carried Bill Clinton to the White House in 1992. Unlike Carter in 1976, Clinton didn't sweep the South. He won Louisiana, Georgia, Tennessee, and Kentucky. But the Republican gains in the rest of the South held steady, despite Clinton's election and then re-election. During his administration, the Democratic coalition that formed in Arkansas after the Second World War was finally on his last legs. Without strong support from Democratic leadership in the state, organized labor had withered. And with it went the labor coalition that voted Democratic. And at the same time, Republican strategists had mastered their appeal to white Christians, which drew an exodus of white Arkansas voters to the party. He won in Arkansas, without the support of a critical mass of working-class white voters the Arkansas Democratic Party ceased to be a real coalition. Black voters made up a larger and larger portion of its shrinking base in the state. And amidst all that, in 1994, a slew of southern states, including Arkansas, underwent redistricting. On the surface, the changes to the legislative districts across the South were supposed to give more representation to black voters. But Professor Maxwell says that concealed a bigger problem. 
yes, you get minority representation, but the other districts are a lot whiter, right? And so post-1994, you see a huge sweep of Republicans winning those districts at the same time that you see an increase in minority representation. But it is, it is, it is corralled, right, into one district. And it also gets you around the scrutiny of the Voting Rights Act. Because you can say, how can this be oppressive? It's creating minority representation. So in the end, the rise of Black representation in Southern state legislatures didn't actually mean that Black voters had all that much more power. It's the irony that what the redistricting that allowed Black representation in the South to really escalate is exactly the same policy that allowed the Republican Party opposed to the very things that those African-American candidates, you know, to the reforms and policies they wanted to implement, it lets those folks come to power. All of these transformations happened really slowly. And as a matter of fact, Arkansas didn't become a solidly Republican state until after the election of Barack Obama in 2008. But the wheels had been turning for a long, long time. That brings us back to the most recent election. And it brings us back to the new coalition of voters that won Georgia for Biden. It wasn't the same coalition that won Georgia for Jimmy Carter back in 1976. But voting rights activists in the state had been working for decades to build a new multiracial voting coalition. And for years, they did that work with hardly any support from the National Democratic Party. Here's Professor Dow again. So when we look at Georgia, particularly um, the work that it took to get people vote registered. So Georgia um, was ripe. Um, And so you see that really going back to around 2004, um, where we have the organization Georgia Stand Up that was formed. Black, particularly black women, they were interested in um, registering black voters. Um, and so that was that work really, really began in the early 2000s. Um, now, where the challenge became for these women and these organizations that were forming in these local communities to register voters, um, black voters, primarily young voters, um, as well, they were challenged in the fact that they were not able to get a lot of the financial support that it was needed to have to do the work. They were not getting the support and the engagement from um, primarily the, the Democratic Party. So these were people that were on their own um, really doing this work with very little resources. So there had not been any investment in the state um, even as the population began to shift, the Democratic Party really, really was slow to the game um, when it came to saying, hey, there's something that possibly be here in a few years. The coalition they built still includes white people. White people with college degrees, working class white people, transplants from elsewhere in the country. And black voters were still at the heart of the coalition particularly in the Atlanta metro area, Savannah, Augusta, Macon, and the cities in southwest Georgia like Albany. But there were new additions to Georgia's Democratic coalition. Like a lot of other southern states, 
Georgia is increasingly diverse, and the Democrats managed to pick up a substantial number of votes from the state's growing Latino communities. We also see that Asian Americans played a significant role as well. Um, so Asian Americans, there were approximately about over 180,000 Asian Americans voted. Uh, so you see this coalition, not just only of white, of white voters, but you see um, voters who have, who historically may not, may not have consistently voted or have not voted at very high rates, actually a part of this coalition. So if Georgia is any indication, multiracial voting coalitions might be making a comeback in Southern politics. But these are new coalitions. In a changing South, and in a changing Arkansas, the political alliances of the 20th century might not have much bearing. And because the post-Trump political landscape feels like uncharted territory, it's hard to know what these coalitions will look like as we move forward, and if they'll hold. Thanks for listening. The Movement That Never Was, A People's Guide to Anti-Racism in the South and Arkansas, is a production of KUAF Public Radio in Fayetteville. With support from the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation, it's written and executive produced by Paul Kiefer. And our theme was composed by Kevin Black. 